0: This week's episode, B, is for Becoming Comfortable with I Don't Know. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes, and that's okay. Today's episode is the story of humanity paddling in the stormy seas of confusion, wondering which way the shore is, setting out for the shore we think we perceive, and then realizing we may have been wrong all along learning to become okay with that. That's my metaphorical way of saying, I don't know where we are headed, and the more I can accept that, and even appreciate it, the better off I'll be. And I think the better off all of us will be if we can take this idea to heart. You see, it seems to me that as our minds have become increasingly connected via the internet over the past decade or so, the information overload has left us with too many options and often confused about which one to choose. It's like my experience trying to buy a beer at a bar in America after living in Japan all these years. So many choices. Sometimes too many choices can be paralyzing. Make it simple. And so sometimes we overcorrect the anxiety we feel as a result of drowning in this sea of information by latching onto an idea and then identifying with it to the point where we mistakenly feel like keeping that idea is a matter of our very survival. This is a case of our ego mistaking its death with our body's death. And, in a secular culture that has lost touch with its deeper sense of self, that denies that such a self even exists, well, we are only going to see more of this sort of behavior. So, can you allow yourself to loosen your grip and say, I don't know? or when proposing an idea, rather than strongly identifying with it, just say it loosely, i.e., hmm, I suppose, or I wonder. Because we are here in early March 2020, the main topic in the global news is the coronavirus, so you're going to hear some references to it throughout this episode, including on the first clip. This first clip is from the Corbett Report podcast, an excellent independent media podcast hosted here out of Japan by James Corbett, and it is an interview with another excellent independent journalist, Derek Brose, who is based in Houston. Brose has recently released an excellent free documentary called The 5G Trojan Horse, which I have linked in the show notes. He's done a lot of digging into 5G, and this clip is him talking about, and saying that he's yet to find any evidence of, the theory that's out there that coronavirus and 5G could be related. But the clip I will play is the focus of this episode, which is, again, becoming comfortable with I don't know. Of course, at the end of the episode, you're going to hear two chapters from The Teacher of the Tree Man, chapters 8 and 9 from book 2. Without further ado, let's get into the episode, shall we? Thanks again for joining me.
1: I think we need to get to a place where we're okay as individuals, as researchers, I know that I am personally, with just accepting that we don't know certain things and that we might never know. Uh, I've noticed in in commenters and people online that that's something they're very averse to and they – you want to again have that worldview that explains everything to you because it's scary to feel like maybe we don't know what's going to happen maybe I'm going to die and never really know the full story I'm never nobody's going to tell me exactly what's going on which we all you know work towards trying to uncover the truth but the fact is that in many of these cases unless you're in China reporting or you've got you know on the ground sources which some of us do have and there's some pretty crazy things going on but unless you can see and witness something firsthand and document it and go confirm and you know that's where I think the journalism comes in, actually trying to talk to experts and, you know, taking one piece of information and then going and confirming that another way. Um, But if you can't do that, then it's okay to just accept that you might not know the answer.
0: It's okay to accept that you might not know the answer. And I find that this is becoming harder and harder for us in this world right now. It seems to me that we're in a situation where things are even more unclear and as it becomes more unclear, our egoic reaction is to latch on to whatever theory we think makes sense of things. And then we argue with each other. And that is as much to explain for all of the division, the, in the culture, the polarization, a lot of that. It's a psychological thing that we're going through as a, as a species. I'm sitting in my recently discovered spot, the same one I sat in last Saturday when I began to cry on the podcast. <laughs> Don't think I'll do that today, but you never know. Anyway, I'm going to share a clip from the Das Here Now podcast, episode 159, Stuck in Between Stories, because I think this is an extremely relevant topic for where we are right now in the world, and for the theme of this show today, which is going to be about getting out of the ego, fear-based, separate sense of consciousness. And when I say ego-based, what I mean by that is the feeling that I am all alone, that there is no connection to me. Well, let's see. It's a sense of separation. That's it. The ego base is a sense of separation, and that's the story the world has been living in for thousands of years, and it's the story, I believe, that we are moving past, and we are moving through. We are still there, and I would argue, and this could be debated, of course, but I would argue that what's going on in U.S. politics this week was an example of that fear Of making the change and that's the ego is very afraid of change because from the ego perspective we think what we have right now is life what this moment is right now is life so any change is a threat to ego and so of course there's varying degrees of this um, but when you let's talk about the political system there are a group of people in the Democratic Party who have a worldview, and they don't want to give up that worldview. They've attached themselves to that worldview, and now there's another rising side of that party, coming from the outside, of course, and in an independent named Bernie Sanders, but who I would argue is actually very much an old-fashioned Democrat, and that the new Democrats, the modern Democrats, actually move the party so far to the right that he's just trying to move them back to their roots. But we can avoid going too far to that, but this new rising uh, Bernie Sanders movement, the modern Democrats don't want any of that to be infiltrating their worldview, because they're so attached to their worldview, and right now, I believe what's going on within all of us, within both our individuals, within myself, I see this happening in myself all the time, and within the collective is this... We are in extremely chaotic stormy seas right now as far as where humanity is and where it may be going. And so as a result, we're clinging, we're cl- we cling, we cling on to whatever idea in the moment feels the safest, whatever idea makes us feel like, okay, I've got this figured out. Yep, this is it. And um, that's kind of the theme of this podcast. And now I'm going to play this clip from Ram because what he says next, I believe, illustrates kind of what I was talking
2: about chaos and anarchy are very scary because in chaos and anarchy the worst that could happen is you could die and if you're a philosophical materialist that's a drag if you're a mystic it's just very interesting if you're a high enough mystic it's just another moment
0: Okay, that's what I want to get to, because next that gets me into the coronavirus, and why it's a real sticky subject to get to, because I am a mystic, I mean, that that really is what this comes down to, is I come at things from a mystical, we're all connected, uh, life and death are two sides of the same coin, dying is still living, and, you know, I don't I don't fear death, it's dying that I fear, the, the the process of dying or of living in a world that to me is a world of every day is a death. Um, when I was addicted to drugs, I had this feeling in the last three or four months, every day that I woke up, that I woke up in hell. And so my life experience at that point, well, at that time was... I'm in, a, I'm in a state of dying, like I, I'm dying, I'm dying, and that was, you know, so, in that sense, like I've actually recently referred to, in talking to some of my friends who've had near-death experiences, that my brush, in my when I was 25, 24, 25 years old, that was what I call a waking death experience, and I want to write about this some more and flesh this out, but... I did face mortality, I knew, I knew at that point, I knew in those last, that last, like I would say from summer, you know, July, August, September of 1998 when I was 25, I knew, in my heart, I knew, like, I'm going to die, this is, or I am dead, I'm. this is death, you know, I was facing death, like, head on, (laughs) and fortunately, due to some... Well, I'll just say it since we're since we're listening to Ram Dass. Uh For those of you who don't know he who he is, he, his original name was Richard Alpert. And as he says earlier on in this talk, he was the first person, that I, and I want to research this and double check this, but he says, and I don't doubt him, it was his life after all, but he says he was the first professor fired from Harvard University in the 20th century. I think that's what he said, the 20th century. Anyway, they don't fire professors very often there. And he and Timothy Leary were the two professors in the early 1960s who were doing research into psilocybin, commonly known as magic mushrooms, as well as LSD. And they were challenging the uh, materialist, modernistic uh, orthodox that Harvard University was or and is uh, preaching. <laughs> and as he said earlier in his talk, um, Harvard does a lot of things right. They do that worldview right. They're great at it. But when you challenge the preachers by saying, like, you're, the thing you're preaching ain't the truth, well, you're not long for that world. <laughs> and so they went their separate ways. They were fired. And then they went on, and he became, he went to India, and, uh, you know, he did this long experience in India or whatever, and took up the name Ram Das. And so that's who is talking here. And The reason I bring him up is because my waking death experience was an LSD experience for me in late September 1998 that made me realize life was worth living and I was worth saving and made me, the next night, call my parents to admit that I was addicted to drugs and I needed help. And that happened. Anyway, so the point is is that i think a lot of the reaction to the coronavirus that i see a lot of it is very it's it's fear i mean it's fear of death it's fear of mortality and i as a living being i understand that so i don't want to come on too strong with like you're wrong to fear death like you know like that's an ego thing, too. That, you know, you're right. I'm right. You're wrong. That whole like that. All the kind of dualities like the, you know, one or either or. That's the sort of what I'm talking about when I talk about separation consciousness. That's that's kind of the ego thing. And um, I see the whole coronavirus thing. Now, I'll say this on my on, in my own personal life, like coronavirus has already had a huge impact here in my life. And so when people say, well, what what does it have have to do with you? Well, all my classes were canceled overnight on a thursday night i went to bed thinking i have you know three and a half weeks left and i'm gonna kind of slowly i'm finishing 15 years and i'm gonna finish on my own terms and each day i'm gonna consider you know i've been doing this for the last seven months i've been thinking about how you know i've been teaching all this time and appreciating all the moments but i went to school you know i woke up that morning and then my friend's like you know they're closing all the schools i'm like what and and I find out, oh, maybe it's not in my city. I go to the school that day. They're like, oh, we're not sure yet. And then a few hours later, my teacher's like, don't come to class. And then I find out, yep, they're definitely canceling classes for the rest of the year. So my school, my main job was done. And then that night, I went to my Friday night class. And they're like, yeah, we're going to close Hopford March. So that was done. And, oh, that day in the afternoon, I got a message from the job I was going to do Saturday. They're like, nope oh, we're going to post. We're going to cancel it. Sorry. And that was done. And then I went to my Japanese class on Wednesday night, and no one was there. So the coronavirus has impacted my march totally, and it is impacting my future. I don't know. I don't know. Like I have this plan. I've got an airplane ticket to go to America on April 6th. I've got a plan to leave on April 11th. I've got a, a, a... Place reserved on April 11th that night to go camping. April 12th, I show up at my friend's house or the place that they've rented. I spend the week with them then I go see a concert on April. I mean, all my plans in April right now are like, who knows? And um, so some of my own like kind of frustration with what I see is a panic and overreaction to this is a result of my life being just totally, you know, completely... One moment, you know, one decision, and then it's just this this snowballing, and it's I'm watching every day, and I'm trying. I'm this week I've been like, all right, I'm not gonna really pay that close attention to the news because it's upsetting, you know, it frustrates me that this plan that I've come up with and kind of worked hard at putting into place is now completely, you know, up up for grabs. No, I was gonna say up for grabs, not grab up for grabs, but um, completely unknown, like whether it will happen or not. And now my friends are taking bets on whether I'm going to leave it all, you know, (laughs) and I mean, those are all fair, you know, fair concerns because as I was biking today, I was thinking my, my, my kids are here, you know, in Japan and like, I've got serious concerns about the way Japan is, whether we want to think this or not, this is an authoritarian society. Like this is a top down, like the boss says, and we do society. That's, that's fact, you know, this is not a democracy, you know, um, it's not like, and it's not an individual, it's a group think society. It's like, oh, okay, the boss says, then we do, you know? Um, I wrote about this at the end of my coronavirus article that I wrote about the whole baseball decision where everybody one minute has this belief, oh, yeah, like the, the referees are wrong, we'll get this fixed out, fixed. And then all of a sudden the referee, like, goes against what their belief is. And they're like, well, the ref said it, we all have to agree, and they're all fine with it. So this is a culture that can overnight, like, if the fucking prime minister is like, no one go outside, no one will go outside. And that, I'm sorry, that really concerns me because I think, I'm i am starting to get a little ranty here. I don't mean to rant. I think, like for me, for my own health, for my own health, and I think this is true for everyone, but for my own health, I need to get outside. I need to get fresh air. I need to go by on bike rides. I need that. Like that is keeping me not only physically, but mentally and spiritually healthy. You know, like... I feel so much healthier on the weekends when I don't have to go to school and sit in a room for six hours, you know. Um, of course, during school, I go out and take walks or whatever. But the teacher's room in the school, to me, is like way overheated. And it's not comfortable for my body. And I don't like it. But, you know, again, that's the group. That's what the group wants. And so I don't I don't align with the way Japanese people live, is my point, the modern Japanese people. And so if all of a sudden there's these edicts by up high and everybody's like, well, we got to follow it. And I can't go for a bike ride? Well then I'm fucked. But on the other hand, like if I didn't have kids, I would have fucking just said to the schools like, keep the fucking money. I'm buying my ticket. I'm going to America now before there's some shutdown. You know, I would have just done that. I don't care about the money. Now, the thing is, so the chaos and all this, as a journalist, like I find it all, and as a human, I find it all extremely interesting and fascinating. But the reason I went on that little tangent is that. My own emotional reaction to the coronavirus and to why I say people are panicking unnecessarily has to do with the fact that my plans and my my immediate life, my daily life has been disrupted this past week. my job's just ending with no sense of closure. you know that was kind of an emo it's been kind of an emotional shock, and now the idea that, okay, what's next? Oh, I've made this plan i've been I've been guided to do this, and all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe that's not it so it's put me in a, in a in a little bit of a mental state of kind of like my own sort of panic, you know? And so I'm like, why is everybody panicking over this virus? Because I'm looking at it from a more logical, mathematical point of view, and I'm like, the mortality rate is, you know, 2 or 3%, and I don't know. I mean, I just, just the numbers aren't that high. I don't know. I, you know, and again, I, and I don't want to talk people out of, you know, whatever their feelings are, but... Are we going to are we going to destroy the whole world economy and our way of life because 2% of the people might die from a disease, you know? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, that's a question I'm asking. Um and I'm just kind of having to that's why I'm saying like trying to sit with it and just relax about it and not panic about what it's going to do. And as I told my mom today, the good news for me is I'm off the clock as of March 31st, so if my ticket or if there's some reason I have to wait, Or whatever, then I just do whatever. You know, I'm going to do whatever. I'm just fucking glad I'm not going to have to go to school anymore and be on the goddamn clock. And that clip led into a rather long diatribe about my vice principal and being on the clock, which I think I will save for the Friday podcast. For now, let's listen to the final thoughts I had closing up this discussion that I was just in from yesterday afternoon outside. Let's try to give each other some space, you know? Yeah, let's try to allow each other to freak out and also accept that, you know, like when the collective freaks out and starts making rules for everyone, that might not be the way we want to go. And I just, I, I just feel like this coronavirus thing, man, like just to me, it feels like an, a, a panic that is causing crackdowns from the collective about what we're allowed to do as individuals all in the name of safety and it's like I just don't I don't buy into a lot of it you know I don't buy into this as being these being the proper solutions um I don't think the kids should have been told they can't come to school and you know I know they're trying to stop the spread of this thing but I don't know anyway I uh I don't know and that's the point of this whole podcast is I don't know and I'm trying to become I think we all could do a lot of good for ourselves if we just said i don't know and kind of just loosened our grip on things you know like i know the seas are stormy but you don't need to hold on so tightly to the side of the boat (laughs) (laughs) or as i say like i I, i've often said we're on if we're in a stormy sea and you and it's the waters are rising and you cling hard hard to a rock and the waters are rising well you can stay on that rock and you'll feel you're not going to go flying around in the water but the water's eventually going to drown you so all right i mean i keep wanting to work with that metaphor but anyway find yourself a nice sized log <laughs> a boat something that floats and then just chill out and don't get up in everybody's business about how they're do how they're doing their thing you know and uh try to help each other you see someone in the water on the rock you say hey dude here's a boat come on anyway we're in between stories man we're moving from me to we and like i feel like this decade is the decade where it's really coming to a head and uh well we'll see how it goes and that's it all right adios this ramdas talk is really good and i'm recording this This is episode 159, Stuck in Between Stories, from early March 2020.
2: In the 60s, the major source of that awakening, that ability, I'd say my audiences, and I was already old then, my audiences were, but my audiences were between about 15 and 25 years old. Because they were, because of the affluence from the post-Second World War, they were Free enough of the pressure of having to, quote, work to survive, that their consciousnesses were loose enough to be able to absorb these altered states of consciousness and start to work with integrating the many planes of consciousness simultaneously. And because they were not seated into the social culture, and they tasted that quality of love and unity, and we're all one. It's the Hate ashbury love, summer of love type thing. It's the sticking the flower into the gun, however that horrible that side effect of that was, but still that act, that image.
0: And that, today, the younger generation, the 15 to 25-year-olds, the millennials and the homelanders or Gen Zers or however you want to call the next generation. They don't have that that looseness because they are so because of the social and economic conditions, they can't feel that looseness. The economic conditions are making them feel a sense of survival. Goes in with gotta work, gotta work hard, gotta gotta do all these jobs, gotta keep working, gotta get money. And if I'm honest with myself I'm rejecting that in a way. I'm saying that I believe there's a way to survive without buying into that that panic, that fear, that that sense of I have to I have to you know, work five jobs or whatever, 70 hours a week, whatever. Got to keep working, got to keep thinking about money, money, money. That's got to be my focus. I'm trusting that there's enough of this life energy out there. That I can support my life and the life of my kids without buying into that, that mindset, you know, and I'm kind of asking the universe to give me the guidance, give me the, give me the connections or whatever to make that vision, make that trust a reality, you know, Um, because I just see how this system is working right now and it seems to me like a death cult you know and I want to live I want my kids to live and so I don't want to put energy into like well in order to survive I have to support a death cult like that doesn't make any sense and yet that's what I see in so much of the world today and some of it's unconscious you know Some of what I see in the education system, it's not that they're consciously like, we're a death call. Actually, I think most of it is unconscious, but the reactions I see from people, the fear to so much of this stuff does seem to me like it will lead to, you know, the death of humanity. It's really interesting watching the world right now because everything seems to be to me, from my perspective and my experience of life, and just where things are at right now, everything is really topsy turvy. And anytime I try to think I got, it, I want to make, I'm gonna get a handle on this. I've got, I know what's going on. And then life is like, nope. Like it bitch slaps me and says, no, you don't know what's going on. So I think a certain sense of like, a loving, loving and like kind of accepting, first accepting and then appreciating. The, the feeling of, I don't know. And like, wow, things are really wide open. Who knows where this could go? Um, if you can appreciate that, that's kind of cool. I'm watching a bee right now. He's on a, on a flower. These yellow flowers on this hillside here. If you can appreciate that, and even, you know, or at least accept it. Accept it. First, you have to kind of accept it, that like... <laughs> Things are really wild right now, and I think people can accept that, right? If you can do that, that's the starting point. The problem right now is that there's so much when you accept that, well, I don't know where things are going, then again, that ego thing is like, wait a minute, we need to have control, we need to know, we need to know what's next, how am I going to plan for the future if if everything's up in the air? uh how can i invest in my stock portfolio how can i pay for you know my kids college fund how can i do anything if i don't know where the future is going and that's understandable you know that's kind of human culture so that's you know life we do live in the linear times so i understand that impulse very much it's also happening for me um how am i supposed to plan my trip if every day I read the news and there's new news about like, oh, the coronavirus is shutting down the airports in San Francisco and Les well, Claypool can't play music and Trans Am's used guitar is just melted, you know, like fuck, you know. <laughs> um, those references you probably don't understand, but that's a reference to the concert I want to go to or that um, I'm planning to go to. I haven't got tickets yet. The guy that has a ticket for me, I'm gonna message him on March 17th if need be one month before the show and be like, dude, I'm in Japan. <laughs> you might want to look for someone else. <laughs> if need be, if need be, that's the whole thing. Like today I get this message, you know, Biden's going to win. You're going to pay me. You're going to pay me. You're going to pay me before you go. Blah, blah, blah. I, go well, I don't plan to pay anybody. I, we made this bet, but I'm not paying anybody till our, d- July, the convention. We have the result, <laughs> you know, just because Biden has had a good week in the media and everything, you know, just because Biden is Biden, Biden, Biden Joe Biden, ex-president President Joe Biden, President Biden, Biden, I'm Biden my time, Biden, Biden, who you voting for, Trump or Biden? I like Biden. I like Trump. It sounds like they're both kind of retarded though when we talk like this, don't it? Yep but I think Trump is better than Biden. At least I know what things are like with Trump. Yeah, but Trump's terrible. We should vote for Biden. But I don't want to be Biden my time. Yeah, but you're playing your Trump card again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We could vote for Kentucky Fried Chicken. We need Sanders. Colonel Sanders. (laughs) You know... (laughs) I don't fucking know. I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know, you know? You know? I don't know, you know? Alright, maybe this should go on the podcast. This is kind of funny. It's all over the place. And, um, I don't know, man, if this isn't crazy making times. If you're finding some sort of sanity in all this, then please give me your magic secret. But, uh, maybe I don't want it because I kind of like feeling a little bit crazy. <laughs> What's that? There's a fish song by Mike Gordon. Everybody talking. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes. Everybody gets a little crazy. A little crazy. <laughs> I'm going to listen to fish. Fuck, fuck this Romdos stuff. Fuck all this intellectualizing shit. Music and podcasting. So, body, get in your body. Get in your body. Go out for a bike ride. Listen to music. Do whatever you need to do. Wish I had some weed to smoke right now, but whatever. Okay, bye-bye. It's it a little crazy sometimes. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes. Everybody gets a little That's right, everybody gets a little crazy sometimes, and that's where the world is at right now, and you know what? Mike Gordon here is trying to tell you. Mike Gordon, bass player from Fish, is trying to tell you that's okay. Everybody gets a little crazy. Everybody gets a little crazy sometimes. 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 That's right, folks. We all get a little crazy sometimes, and you know what? That's okay. As Wim Hof would say, yeah. breathe in, breathe out. If you feel a little tingling in your body, and you feel yourself going crazy, that's okay. And a clip from Rom addressing I don't know.
2: And the interesting question you and I can look at is how do you deal with mystery? How do you deal with the unknown? How do you deal with it? Well, the answer is, I don't know. But I don't know doesn't have to be, oh my God, I don't know. In other words, can you live now rooted enough in other planes of awareness so that you can sit with the uncertainty of not knowing how all this comes out and not be immobilized by that uncertainty. Can you sit with it in such a way that you are doing what you do, because it's in these, you call it your dharma, without an attachment to how it comes out?
0: Indeed, easier said than done, I understand. But that's the challenge of these times. For myself, And I believe for everyone else. Can we learn to accept and live with and maybe even appreciate, I don't know how things are going to come out, yet I'm going to keep doing my best, keep working hard at what I believe I need to be doing without becoming attached to the actual end result. Live in the moment. That's pretty much what this is all about. Well, folks, that's it for this week's show. Next up, you're going to hear chapters eight and nine from book two of The Teacher and the Tree Man. And it's interesting, as I read these chapters last night, I realized Paul Lucas was struggling with some of these same issues, too. That sense of everything I do is just not working out. And how do you come to terms with that? So it seems that the book is syncing up nicely with the theme of this week's podcast. Okay, until next week, or Friday, or an emergency podcast, you never know. I'll see you later, and thanks again for listening. Enjoy the book. A brief correction. Actually, the chapters you're going to hear from the book are chapters 9 and 10 from book 2. I believe I said 7 and 8. I was wrong. Anyway, enjoy. Chapter 9. White Lies and Fatherhood As positive as the day's developments were, they hadn't all been good. The main strike against that Saturday was the article Lucas had read in the Seattle Soundoff. The Soundoff had a reputation as a defender of the environment, yet the tone of the article disturbed Lucas. On Sunday morning, as they cleaned up after breakfast, he told Terry about what he'd read. Basically, the gist of it is that environmentalists are getting so desperate that they often rely on unscientific reasons that make the movement appear out of touch with reality, Lucas said. Was the article about Last Rush Canyon? Terry asked. No, totally unrelated, Lucas said. More of a generalized article with a few examples cited, though Last Rush wasn't one of them. Still, it seemed relevant, and it made me wonder. Just because science has never discovered something, like Sylvanus, does that mean its existence is unscientific? Well, no, Terry said. But science does require evidence, as well as the ability to reproduce results. Daddy, daddy, Scarlet yelled, tugging on Lucas's leg. But he didn't answer. I can appreciate that, Lucas said. But I guess I just think that for astounding discoveries like Sylvanus to be perceived, one needs to be cautious about being so skeptical that you become close-minded. Well, Terry said. You know I've got some issues with certain aspects of the scientific community. This article seems to be written by someone who believes strongly that the environmental movement is an important one, and so it needs to be cautious about what evidence it uses to convince people. I understand, Lucas said. I'm just frustrated because I have seen Sylvanus, and for me, that's evidence enough. I just wish he wouldn't play hide-and-seek with the world. It's putting me in a precarious position. Mommy! Scarlet yelled. What, honey? Terry said, appearing annoyed. Can I please go out and play? Scarlet asked. Sure, Terry said. Just be sure to wear a jacket. It's starting to get cold. Instead of responding, Scarlet ran out of the room. What's gotten into her? Lucas asked. I think she feels we've been ignoring her, Terry said. Maybe we were, Lucas thought, but didn't say anything. Instead, he sat down to read Sunday's Tacoma Post he winced as he read about the newly coined phrase, war on terror. Why did his country always have to declare war on things? Poverty, drugs, now terror? And didn't President Bush recognize that terror was a tactic, not something definable one could fight and win a war against? As 9-11 was slowly receding into history and the initial emotion of it was wearing off, clear to Lucas that his country was going to start making some very questionable moves. After perusing the articles in the main news section, Lucas opened the editorial section. It was always more bloated on Sunday with the words of various national and local columnists, as well as the official newspaper editorials. Even with several pages to go through, it didn't take Lucas long to find the article that would shape his mood for the rest of the day. Of the newspaper's official editorials, which meant that it was the position of the newspaper. Lucas braced for the worst when he read the headline Last Rush's Last Chance Desperation Time. Supported the developers and made reference to a last minute desperate attempt by the environmental group to forestall what should, by now, be a foregone conclusion. A reference to the quote from Hartman about Lucas being a citizen with an overactive imagination. The Post concluded that it had to agree after both its reporter and the team of scientists had gone out and not seen a thing. It also said that for Lucas, the scientists' plan to go out on Wednesday was one last chance for him to be proven sane in the eyes of the world. Lucas didn't want to get angry, but his emotions were too powerful. So he slammed the paper down on the kitchen table and yelled, Damn them! It felt like he was trying to barge through that annoying hedge, but its thorns were digging deeper and deeper into him. Didn't Wilson have any influence over this editorial? After all, Lucas knew the young reporter was planning to go out again on Wednesday and that he really wanted to believe Sylvanus was real. So why didn't they at least hold off until after Wednesday before coming down in favor of the developers? Why disbelieve him now? Remembering Terry's comment that Scarlett felt like they'd been ignoring her, Lucas spent most of that Sunday catching up with his daughter, hoping to take his mind off his troubles. He had a feeling Terry was right, that with all he had on his plate, Scarlett had taken a back seat in his consciousness, and that made him sad. Lucas found her in her bedroom, sprawled on her belly on her bed, legs kicking the air behind her, coloring. He couldn't make out what she was coloring, so he went to get a closer look. Scarlett closed the book and looked up at her dad. That's okay, sweetie, Lucas said. Daddy was just trying to see what you were working on. Nothing much, she said. Can I see it? Can we play outside? Scarlet asked. Um, yeah, sure, Lucas said, a bit thrown by what felt like her not wanting to show him her picture. She was usually quick to share her work with him or Terry. Okay, let's go, she said, jumping up from the bed and running out the bedroom door. She hadn't bothered to put away the colored pencils and crayons, and Lucas thought of telling her to do so, but decided to let it slide. For the first time in recent memory, Lucas had the unsettling feeling that a distance had grown between him and his daughter. Come on, Daddy, she yelled from the front hallway. Let's go. Okay, he yelled back. He decided to let her dictate their time outside, show her she had his full attention. So they spent the morning gathering materials, pine cones, needles, fallen leaves, from around the yard and from the path in the last rush canyon. Scarlet asked her dad to carry a bucket where they would store the items worked on one of his projects in the forest the time passed quickly for lucas and before he knew it terry was calling them in for lunch peanut butter and jelly sandwich quickly so lucas followed suit thinking they'd go back to their project outside said that they were done outside and almost seemed to dismiss her dad from his duties she took the bucket of materials and went to her room asking not to be bothered wonder what she's up to terry asked as they cleared the table Good question, Lucas said. Guess we'll find out. Lucas popped himself in front of a football game, eventually drifting into a dreamless sleep, and was shaken awake by Scarlett. It's done, Daddy, she said. But you gotta come to my room to see it. It's not yet dry. He rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and followed his daughter to her room. On the floor was a picture of Shorty the Squirrel on a tree branch. It was all made from the materials they'd gathered that day. It didn't take a lot of imagination to see it, but it had certainly taken a lot to create it. It's beautiful, honey, Lucas told Scarlet, and she beamed back at her proud father. Absolutely beautiful. That night, Larry called. So, Lucas said, unable to resist getting to the point, did you call her? Shit, man, Larry said. I don't want to say it, but I think you were right. The number doesn't work. Good message about how the number was no longer in service, but whatever. Sorry, Larry, Lucas said, though a tiny part of him was pleased with the fact that he'd been correct. Anyway, that's not the reason that I'm calling, Larry said, and just then Lucas realized he was going to ask about the weed. Terry was standing within hearing distance, so Lucas was going to have to be careful. Did you find something of mine? What should he say? It wasn't a huge bag, and he figured Larry wasn't going to be all broken up about it if Lucas admitted he had a few smokes out of it. But he couldn't say that right in front of Terry, so he said, I'm not sure I know what you're talking about, Larry laughed. Maybe that's a good thing. I'll tell you then. I think I left some weed in your glove compartment. Really? Lucas said, trying to sound surprised, but not so surprised that Terry would ask him what he'd been so surprised about. What a difficult tightrope to walk. Yeah, would you mind checking? Larry said. Sure, Lucas said. I'm in the middle of something, Luke, so can I call you back? Yeah, yeah, that's groovy. I'll be here, Larry said. As soon as he hung up the phone, Lucas was relieved to see that Terry hadn't been struck by the curiosity bug. So he took the chance to casually stroll out to the garage and called Larry back. Okay, man, Lucas said. I have to be careful here. Careful? What's up? What's up is that I'm not in college anymore, Lucas said, but immediately regretted it because it had sounded rude. I've got an agreement with my wife not to smoke. Get out! Are you kidding? Larry said. "'I thought she was a fellow smoker.' "'Yeah, she is, or or was,' Lucas said. "'But once I started teaching, I had to take a drug test. "'And because we have Scarlet around, we both agreed that it would be best to give it up.' "'Man, I can't believe you,' Larry said. "'The smokestack stoner is now stone sober?' Lucas laughed at the memory of one of his more clever nicknames. "'Well, not exactly. I can still drink.' "'Oh!' So, it's not totally about setting a good example for your kid, Larry said. It's about conforming to what society expects of you. Well, um, yeah, Lucas said. If you want to put it that way, I suppose you're right. Anyway, man, I did find it, and I already smoked some of it. I hope it's not a problem. For me? Larry said. Nah, man, no big deal. a problem for you? Not if no one finds out, Lucas said. Don't worry, I'm being careful. Good enough. There's a one other thing I wanted to ask you about. How do those mushrooms work? Freaking great, man, Lucas said, happy to be talking about something else. Sylvanus took a huge dose yesterday, and he was able to move his body so much that I saw the tree move, and I also could see a faint outline of his toes. Groovy, Larry said. Do you need more? Yeah, Lucas said. I've got enough for one more dose, and time is running out. There's a pretty good chance we're going to lose, and they will start cutting the forest down in a matter of weeks. Whoa, Larry said. Well, I can get them, no problem. But I've got another idea, since you are under some pretty serious time constraints. Why not try something stronger? Something stronger? Lucas asked. Not sure what was stronger than a heavy dose of mushrooms. Acid? What are you thinking about? 5-M-E-O-D-M-T, Larry said. You smoke it, and it blasts you off into other realms. If you're lucky, a direct experience of God. At least that's what people tell me. I've yet to try it. Hmm, Lucas said. Well, remember, the goal of this mission is to wake up his physical body, not to waken his mystical nature. I mean, I think he's already sort of in that state. Understood, Larry said. Which is why I will get you some more shrooms, since they are working, but also give you some of this 5-MEO DMT, just to see if it helps. Fair enough, Lucas said. Larry, I gotta go before Terry comes out here and asks me why I'm chatting with you in the dark, cold garage. But thanks, I really appreciate it. Anything for a friend, Larry said. I'll be back in touch later this week about all this. Okay, Lucas said. Don't forget this time. Chapter 10, The Discomforting Truth Lucas opens his eyes and sees a forest too green to be believed pulsating with life all around him. He watches it breathe in and out, and he feels a deep sense of contentment, just sitting quietly and observing this strange perception. After a few endless minutes of this, he hears a voice. You know why we can't tell them, don't you? What was that? Or better, whose voice was that? It's you, the voice said, the you that is connected to the earth and that stretches toward the sky breathing the air. The tree? Yes, the tree. You. And there is something you need to understand. What's that? You can't save yourself. I'm getting confused. Why do I need saving? Not the you you are thinking about, but the you I am talking about. Oh, you mean the tree? Yes. But not only this tree, but that tree over there, and over there, and over there. The trees that live in this forest. Okay, got it, but I'm still confused. What do you mean I can't save the trees? I guess we are going to have to spell this all out for you. Consider. Your friend decides to show himself to the world. What would happen... They wouldn't tear this forest down and build them all, that's what. Oh, really? Okay, we'll give you that they won't build them all. But how can you be so sure they wouldn't tear down the forest? Why would they? They could make just as much money keeping the forest intact and charging people money to come in here and see Sylvanus. Okay, you are on the right track. But think about it. Do you really think they would leave the forest untouched, that they would make people walk all the way down a soggy trail into the woods to see your friend? Or do you think they would make it more convenient for people? Lucas understands now. If Sylvanus came out, he'd be a tourist attraction. The problem is, many tourists want to be able to get to their tourist destination with the least amount of effort. For most of them, that meant getting in their car and, at the most, walking a few hundred yards to view this natural phenomenon. Even more, the people who owned this tourist attraction would want to maximize the ways they could make money out of it. That meant not only would they build paths to the tree, but, worst of all, they'd build a gift shop where they could sell tree man souvenirs. The gift shop would probably be located. No more than a short walk from Sylvanus, and they probably would build a small cafe as part of the building. Next to the gift shop cafe would be a parking lot, and the parking lot would have to have a road attached to it from the highway a few miles away. I've never thought it all the way through, Lucas thinks. No, you didn't. But your friend did. He did, because we told him. We told him how humans in this culture behave and we spelled out for him what this land would look like. And worst of all, for him, is that he would still be alive, right in the middle of this tourist trap, while many of the trees and creatures he's come to love out here will have been killed or chased off during the development. From his way of thinking, it's a worse fate than the shopping mall. Why didn't Sylvanus tell me this himself? He was going to, or how to tell you, or when. So we asked us to do it. Lucas is stunned. He can't say anything. And all of a sudden, anger rises from his gut. God damn it! God fucking damn it! God damn it! He screamed. All, all, Terry said. What? What is it? Lucas looked at the clock next to the bed. 11.55 p.m. He had been asleep for only an hour. His heart pounded, and he felt the heat of anger in his cheeks. Finally, he gathered himself and said, We can't save it. What? Terry said. The forest, Lucas responded. It can't be saved, and I've been an idiot to think it could. Terry wiped his sleep out of her eyes and said, I'm not sure I follow. Okay, let me explain, Lucas said, and he told Terry what the dream had revealed to him. Oh my God, Terry said. What does it mean? Do we just give up? No, not totally, Lucas said. We have to at least save Sylvanus. But how? Either he becomes lumber if they build them all, or a creature in a perverse zoo. Both fates are horrible, Terry said. Lucas could hear tears welling up in her voice. No, there's one more way, Lucas said. I haven't told you about my most recent experience. I went out on Saturday and gave him a lot of mushrooms. He wiggled his body so much that the tree moved, just a bit, and I could see a faint outline of his toes. Terry stopped crying. Really? Yes, really, Lucas said. If we can somehow get him out before they start chopping down the forest, perhaps then he can show himself, and then they won't cut it down. But if he's out, what would stop them from cutting it down? Terry asked. Good question, Lucas said. We'll have to work on that. Lucas's mood that Monday morning was morose. Even though he still had hope he could bust Sylvanus out of the tree, the dream last night convinced him that the forest was most likely beyond saving. Unless. Unless what? Terry's question had been right on the money. If the endangered species had been removed from the forest, they couldn't argue that cutting it down would endanger the species, could they? No, there had to be some other argument. And that morning, Lucas was too tired from a restless night and the implications of the dream to come up with anything. There was one thing that somewhat cheered up Lucas. Chris Lee was back. But was this the same Chris Lee? Yes, he was still chatting with his friends. But Lucas sensed something different. Some of the playful innocence was gone. replaced by a note of bitterness in his language. Lucas had always been adept at picking up on the moods of people around him, especially people he took an interest in. While others would probably have said Lee hadn't changed at all, Lucas noticed it. Some of the spark had been extinguished. At lunch, Lucas brought up his observation to Wendy, who said, Well, from what I've heard, his essay didn't exactly please Weinberg. What do you mean? It didn't show the remorse and understanding of what he'd done wrong that Weinberg was looking for, Wendy said. "'Boy, I'd love to read that essay,' Lucas said. "'But considering my standing with Weinberg right now, it's not going to happen,' Wendy said. "'No problem. I'll just ask Chris what he wrote.' Wendy looked at Lucas. "'Paul,' she said. "'Why not let the dog sleep on this one?' "'Why? Do you need me to warn you about Weinberg again?' "'No,' Lucas said. This was getting to be too much. "'Please don't. Stop worrying about me, Wendy.' I don't see how taking an interest in what's happened to one of my top students makes me a bad teacher. Of course not, Wendy said. Just try not to take sides. Sorry, but I've already done that. And now I'm going to go see if I can find Chris. Good answer. Lucas stood up and strutted out of the staff room, ready for battle. I don't have another copy of the essay, Lee said, but all I wrote was that I don't understand why trying to help somebody is wrong. Okay, Lucas answered, realizing that Lee had made the same argument he had. And what else? Not much else, Lee said. I was told I had to come to an understanding of what I'd done wrong, and that I had to be sorry about it. I tried, I really did. But I couldn't, so I didn't. Wow, Lucas thought. He'd always known Lee was strong-willed, but until that moment, he'd never known how courageous he was, and how honest. Did you show your parents? Lucas asked. Yeah, Lee said, both said I made some good points, but I needed to think harder about it from Schmidt's perspective, and they both said I had to understand that following the rules is important. Still, I couldn't do it, so I wasn't going to write a big lie about being sorry for something that I'm not sorry for. Well, Lucas said, that I can understand. Thanks, Mr. Lucas, Lee said. I thought you were going to act like all the other adults and tell me I was being bad. But just because an adult tells me I have to think something doesn't mean I'm going to think it. Lucas paused and considered his words. It was dangerous territory for him to blurt out what he was thinking. But then he thought about it more. Why wouldn't he say it? Wasn't this a free country? Wasn't part of his job teaching the kids that not everyone thought the same way, nor should they? Finally, he said, Nor should you. Don't worry, Chris. decided this from the get-go. What happened to you is not fair, but I'm sure you've heard before that life isn't always fair. Lee looked stunned. Thank you, Mr. Lucas, he finally said. Mr. Lucas, there's one more thing. What's that? My parents are coming after school to meet with me and Mr. Hawkins, Lee said. Principal Weinberg just told me at the start of lunch. He will be there too. I'm worried. Hawkins was the school counselor, and Lucas had a bad feeling the meeting was not going to be a good one for Lee. Wendy had told Lucas that he needed to drop it, but why couldn't the school drop it? Hadn't Lee already served his punishment with the five day suspension and the essay? Why were they trying to force him into accepting their version of events? Lucas was pondering these questions when Lee finally said, Um, uh, Mr. Lucas? Yes, Chris? Can I go out and play? Lucas had to laugh, of course. But hurry up, class starts in ten minutes. Lucas had been pondering the dark news the dream had revealed to him and letting the reality of it sink in. On one hand, it depressed him that the fight for the forest would likely be lost no matter what they did, and it frustrated him to think about life without the solace of his corner of the natural world where he could just be himself. On the other hand, it liberated him, knowing that he no longer had to feel frustrated when Sylvanus didn't reveal himself to the scientists and Weston. Sure. He'd still go out with them on Wednesday, but he knew the outcome of it, and this time he wasn't going to make a fool of himself when Sylvanus didn't come out. Still, there was something that was bothering him, so first thing after school that Monday, he went to the forest to have a chat with Sylvanus. When he arrived, Sylvanus was again exercising his vocal cords, but this time it appeared he was also exercising as much of his body as he could. Lucas could see the tree moving even more than it had the last time, and Sylvanus's toes were even more visible, as was the slight suggestion of hands. Hey, Paul, Sylvanus said cheerfully as Lucas entered the grove. Sylvanus, Lucas said and quickly added, I'm sorry. Sorry? For what? For not understanding your reason for not showing yourself, Lucas said. It all seems so obvious now after the dream. Yes, well, lots of things seem obvious after being revealed to us. What's that saying? Hindsight is 20 20? Anyway, don't be too hard on yourself, Paul. I've noticed you have a tendency to do that sometimes. Lucas laughed. Yeah, my wife tells me the same thing sometimes. And my parents said the same thing when I was growing up. Anyway, there's something I want to talk to you about. Something that still bothers me. Okay. First, and this is not the major point, but I need to make sure you don't do anything to reveal yourself on Wednesday, Lucas said. If you did, I think it's likely that the Commissioner would put a guard out here and we'd lose any chance we have of busting you out of the tree. I'm sure they'd want to study you and preserve you, so they would be unwilling to risk you somehow getting out or being destroyed. Oh, I think you're right. That means for the next day or so, it might be better to not work on moving your body too much. We want you to be able to hide in the tree, and if we come out here and can clearly see you, then all is lost. Good point. One I hadn't thought about. Okay, I'll take a break. Now, what's the main point? Well, Lucas said, it seems clear to me that our next move is to focus on getting you out of that tree. Sounds right. So let's assume we succeed in that. You are out, so now how do we save the forest? Is there a way that I am not seeing? Sylvanus didn't answer. Lucas waited, but still the tree man didn't speak. Well, Lucas said, I'm sorry, Paul, Sylvanus said. It's just I've got no answers. Unless something reveals itself to us, and quickly, I'm afraid it's a lost cause. And with that, Sylvanus's eyes filled up, and soon it was raining teardrops and sap again. Lucas refused to give in, refused to just sit and cry about it. There's got to be some way, he screamed. We just haven't thought of it. After a minute, Sylvanus stopped crying and said, Perhaps you are right, but I think we have to prepare for the worst. No, Lucas said. I'm not going to give up this place so easily. Not this place that has come to be as important to me as my family. I can't. You're not giving up easily, Sylvanus said. Look at you, Paul. You've got puffy black circles under your eyes. Your hair is a mess. It's clear you've been doing everything you can. You're a fighter, and I greatly appreciate that. "'But sometimes, hard as it is, we have to accept when the battle is lost "'and move on to other battles.' "'Damn it!' Lucas yelled. "'This was not going the way he had hoped. "'He had hoped Sylvanus had some more wisdom, some other trick up his sleeve. "'What he expected was for the tree-man to suggest they needed to give up. "'Doesn't this place matter to you?' "'Of course it does,' Sylvanus said, fighting back tears. "'Of course it does.' It's a part of me, and losing it might be the hardest thing I've ever gone through. But, Paul, remember I told you about one of my visions in my last mushroom journey? The one about watching a little girl who I think was my sister dying? The pain I felt was overwhelming. So I know what it's like to lose something close to me. I'm sorry, Lucas said. I really am. I just refuse to accept that we've lost this place, especially with several days to go before the decision is made. And that's your prerogative, Sylvanus said. The last thing I want to do is convince you to stop fighting for something you love. All I'm trying to do is lessen the pain of it if it happens. In the end, if it does, all we can do is carry on the fight in some other way.